Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the My Love of Golf podcast. Today is another interview in the interview series of My Love of Golf podcast with a young man that I've known for a little while now. His name's Steve Smith, or you may know him as the Golfing Greenkeeper. Now, Steve is a former greenkeeping superintendent who's plied his trade on a number of courses around uh, the traps in New South Wales and is now dedicating some time to helping us understand the behind-the-scenes world of greenkeeping. Now, as golfers, we all sometimes don't give enough thought to the world of greenkeeping and the effort that the greenkeepers and the ground staff of these great golf courses that we all play on go into to keep them pristine. Now Steve's joining me today to help us understand a little bit more about the world of greenkeeping and his world as the golfing greenkeeper and he's got some special insights into some very special courses. So without further ado, Thanks for joining us again. As always, like, subscribe, share this podcast if you've liked what we do and want to help us keep growing. Tell a friend, share it, but this time, sit back, relax, enjoy the interview with Steve, the golfing greenkeeper. It's going to be a good one. Thanks again. Steve Smith, the golfing greenkeeper, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you, sir? Good, thanks, Ross. Mate, thank you very much for having me. Mate, was that intro okay? Was that all right? Yeah, mate, that was perfect. Excellent wow. work. Awesome. So, mate, the golfing greenkeeper, let's go back to the start of life as the golfing greenkeeper. So, where did the journey begin for you, young man? Well, mate, so for me, look, I, I suppose. It was something that, in a roundabout way, I, I kind of fell into, in a sense. I I was fortunate enough, I, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, so I consider myself on the verge of, I suppose, metropolitan and country life, and I consider myself a little bit more country. And um, we actually grew up next door. The back fence was Wentworth Falls Country Club in the Blue Mountains, and, and some people may or may not have, have heard of it, but... That was basically my backyard. So from the age of eight, when we moved up there, um, that was the backyard, and and we just used to go out there and hit a golf ball and, and play. And eventually, my um, my father, my old man, um, would play golf out the back, and and he sort of got us to join up as juniors for something to do and keep us occupied instead of rummaging around the bush and I suppose um, doing all sorts of of fun things that kids do before the world of iPhones and iPads, but. Um, so, yeah, we just used to occupy ourselves in the backyard and, and I got into golf and, and really enjoyed the game and loved playing it and got better and better. And as I grew up, um, the opportunities of work arise that, you you know, you get older and become a teenager, you need money and bits and pieces. And um, at, when I was 15, the course, uh, the Green Keepers, the club, were looking for someone to, um, I suppose, that was affordable for one that could work on weekends before the competition and just do a little bit of that basic prep of checking bunkers, getting the dew off the greens, um, making sure that the course was presentable, um, no damage overnight from any hooligans or whatever it might have been. And um, I just I wanted to be out there. It was just something that I, I wanted to try and be part of. Um, and I loved the game. So I started that at the age of 15 and then eventually finishing school, um, took on an apprenticeship and 
I suppose life began as a as an apprentice greenkeeper from that point. That's all I know, mate. To be fair, yeah. <laughs> that's all I know. He's <clears throat> greenkeeping. So back in the early days there at Wentworth Golf Club, how many people were on the team that you were part of, tending to the uh, the, the greens and the fairways and the tees and the rough at Wentworth, mate? Look, so so I suppose um, golf was different a little bit, and and I'm talking you know 24 years ago, in a sense that. Um, there were more people required to maintain a golf course. And there was probably relatively, I say relatively, there's probably a little bit more money around then um, with more um, more of the clubs having more members. Um, and it was a member-based club, even though it was a public access one as well, uh, and still is today, I might add. Um, so we had, from what I can recall, there were six guys running around. Um, there was um, three apprentices and three greenkeepers and, you know, we all had jobs to do and it was before the world of fairway watering being accessible to a lot of courses and, um, you know, so things were slower to do. Um, machines weren't as efficient as they are today. They weren't, um, you know, th- there was more hands-on work required if you didn't have an irrigation system. Um, so there was a lot of manual work involved. Um, and the club wasn't exactly, um, I suppose, rolling I say that loosely, but didn't have a lot of money. Um, so work was, was certainly more labour-intensive and uh, to do lots of the of the jobs that we sort of do now in, with large-scale machinery and they're, like, they're a lot more efficient now. So we had six on course and, and I became one of those guys and as, as my time went on as an apprentice, those numbers did drop and that I, I put it, I attribute it to the efficiencies in the the trade, as it were, with the improvements in machinery and then ultimately irrigation and all that sort of stuff. So the club could then invest in infrastructure and equipment and you would then save in in labour costs as time went on and natural attrition with people moving. How is the greenkeeping trade perceived in current times, do you think? What do you think of that? Look, I, I... it's a funny thing. I I tend to I was in a bubble. I um, as a superintendent, which I eventually came to be on another golf course at Katoomba in the Blue Mountains. But when I was a super, um, you and we were doing construction, and it was a development of a golf course. So I was very much in a bubble. Um, and you look at things with the people that you talk to in the industry and the things that you're doing. Now that I'm away from that, um, in a sense that I'm I'm no longer working on a golf course. Um, I talk to a lot more of the people playing, the average, the average Joes out there, family members who play golf, whether it be for holidays or, or casually or whatever it might be. So I've sort of now started to see a lot of the other side, as it were, on the perception of. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very much two tails. I think you have some people who view it as a very, um, a very qualified profession that that works on the edge of science and agronomy and and that sort of type of thing and and, and certainly in Australia's climate now uh, water efficiency and that sort of stuff um, and view it as a very uh, like I said a very high profile role and a very specific one then you get a lot of and I don't mean to be rude to anyone then you get a lot of uh, people that aren't in golf or in in agronomy or greenkeeping or agriculture in a sense. Um, that view it still today as something that, in a sense, they see it as a poison on the environment. 
in terms of fertilizer use and and be, um, fungicide pesticides across the board and how they're utilized they go all those things are being applied in that property or that site well that's not good it's perceived as not good because it, it they don't understand how those things work and I'm not saying that um, everything that is all the inputs in a golf course are um, that don't have they won't have some sort of effect on, on whatever the, the target role is of what you're trying to achieve, but people outside it will just go, well, that's a high input area on a golf course that should never really be like that. Um, golf courses and turf, like a monoculture type site that, you know, you're creating something that's unnatural. So they go, well, all those inputs aren't required. They should never be like that. So it's, it's in a sense, what's leaching through, what's being put in, what are the after effects of, will they be found 20, 30 years down the track? Who knows? So they just go, that shouldn't be done. Yeah. And they don't understand it. And I totally appreciate that. It's, it's like anything you don't understand, it's hard to, to grasp. And you, you do have a, a thought process that maybe something untoward could happen in the future because we don't know it. Um, so I do think there's very much two sides to the view of greenkeeping. And I think the, the industry itself certainly across the globe, but but locally in Australia, has been doing a lot to try and improve their perception um, by others on them um, and how they're viewed by improving their environmental efforts and the way that they um, protect their sites and minimise those inputs and try and be certainly very much more conscious of any over-inputs that are unnecessary. Um, and try and keep things to a minimum that have no residual after effects. And there have been some instances in the past, sadly, where things have gone wrong. Um, and I, I do suppose that people do make some mistakes from time to time, sadly, as well. But um, I don't believe anyone should be tarnished forever. And certainly an industry will have to try and move and improve out of that. And I think that the greenkeeping industry has done so a lot in some big leaps and bounds over the last 20 years. We've jumped straight into the pointy end there with that discussion, um, and I, I get it. You know, I'm obviously a golfer, and and I get the sense that you know the environmental sustainability uh, aspect of what you talked about there is is a growing topic. It's not going away, and of course, as you've articulated very well, that it's something that's you know every um, greenkeeping body needs to be conscious of and working towards and, and setting new standards and pushing the boundaries and, and looking for ways to do the things that you're talking about. What I was thinking as you were talking is, is greenkeeping any different to any of the other, um, you know, grounds, maintenance type um, fields, you know, be it councils tending to sports parks and councils tending to, you know, other areas you know, I say councils twice there, but, you know, I'm sure farming and, you know, you referred to greenkeeping as a form of agriculture. Is it doing anything vastly different to any of those other forms of agriculture or greenkeeping or ground, ground management, grounds maintenance? Look, I mean, greenkeeping, if you boil down the essence of it, is obviously maintaining turf. Mm -hmm. um, but a golf course isn't just turf. Um, you talk about councils in, in turf prep, sports, playing fields, that sort of stuff. We talk about, you know, the, the MCGs of the world, um, cricket wickets around, uh, sporting fields, soccer fields, 
um, amenity lawns of council areas, uh, large, you could even go into large um, sort of wedding venues with lawns and gardens and the like, you're maintaining a turf surface. So, um, you know, those areas that are, that are solely turf oriented in sports turf um, will have similar inputs to a golf course. Mm. The difference I find, and this is just my personal view, um, to, you know, an SCG or an MCG uh, to a golf course is that there's so many more other environmental um, ingredients, as it, as it were, to the landscape. And I, I often talk about landscape when I talk about golf courses um, because a golf course can either be invented, as, as it were, and that everything's just clear field and man-made, and everyone knows plenty of examples of that around the place, across the world. And then there's those other ones that are the more natural sites where a golf course is, is more discovered through a landscape and, and those turf areas are placed throughout to make the golf sort of evolve as you go along and it feels like it was always there. It was an inherent part of that space. Um, but with a landscape that is a golf course, you have um, natural riparian corridors of bush, um, thoroughfares for wildlife. There's usually streams, drainage areas that will flow into creeks or rivers if they're not already incorporated. Um, dams, natural swamps, water bodies, um, you know, dry areas, rainforest areas, high humidity areas, high wind areas. There's so many different parts that make up a landscape. Um, that, and I'm not taking anything away from the sports turf guys because that's, that's their field. That's what they do on a, on a cricket field or, um, on a, on a rugby league field or any other, any other specific grass type. And, and on a golf course, you look after those turf areas, but it's the, the other parts of the landscape in the boundaries of that golf course that need to be cared for. Mm. And I say cared for because that's the word and that's the exercise that you do um, when you're maintaining that land. You don't just look after grass on a golf course. And I think some people that are either new to the game or don't understand it or some people are certainly oblivious to it and just generally don't care. They're out there just to play golf and there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, but every part of a golf course from fence to fence, boundary to boundary, is cared for. Whether it's untouched or touched, it's done for a purpose and for a reason. Um, and whether it looks natural, it could have been man-made to look that way, it could actually be natural. And, you know, where we were at Katoomba, um, and I can speak of my site there, uh, inside the bounds, we had a golf course inside our, our boundary of the course. Uh, we had 18 holes. But about 30% of the actual property that was uh, was um, laid out as, as the golf course land included an environmental protected area mm. that couldn't be touched by the golf course, but we had to work towards maintaining and keeping weeds out. It had some hanging swamps, which are endemic to the Blue Mountains, and they're very unique spaces with the soil underneath the, in the subsurface and how they work and that sort of stuff. So... It's not just the grass. There's a lot of other things that go on on a golf course that um, need to be cared for. As I've mentioned to you in the past, my brother was the greenkeeper of the family, and yes. he had his uh, he did his apprenticeship down at Macquarie Links, which you'll be familiar with ah, down yep. there in Sydney. And then he moved up Nelson to the Hayworth Design. Yep. Then he moved up to the Vintage and uh, worked up there with Bob Harrison. Yep. 
Yep. And then then he returned to our home course, which was uh, Cessnock Country Golf Club, then the Oaks, then Stonebridge, then Cessnock Country Golf Club, and then unfortunately one of these courses that is no more. Much like my 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 last yep. one. But he's seen he he saw the the world of you know greenkeeping maintenance from construction through to you know, growing through to you know the establishment of the the course and and then going back to that you know local country type course where you know there was three I think three or four staff and you know his world was five a.m. in the morning till five p.m. at night and. <laughs> And then, you know, pretty much at the behest of every, what's felt like to him at many times, the behest of every member, um, you know, don't like this, I like this, change that, move this, why is that like that, all of that sort of thing, which um, which he could cope with. But I think ultimately, you know, he moved away from the trade and I think it was that sort of seven, you know, permanent seven-day-a-week sort of environment, what felt like seven-day-a-week, and you know, five a.m. till five p.m., and that just sort of took him away from it. Do you do you think that the trade is as a trade is growing, or you know, are more people coming to it? I, I think maybe the standards have changed since he was doing it. But you know, do you think more people are doing doing greenkeeping or considering greenkeeping as a trade? Look, uh, that's a very good question. Um, my experience on what I've seen from being an apprentice. Um, and the size of, of our team at that time changing slowly. And then I moved on to being a uh, superintendent, which was then part of the club, and then employing people and, and training up apprentices. Um, it's it's changed so much. I used to go to a TAFE in Western Sydney uh, that opened up and introduced greenkeeping in Western Sydney because they needed more um, facilities to teach. After, or oh, at the time that Katoomba closed in 2013, they closed that TAFE down because there wasn't enough greenkeepers coming in that wanted to be apprentices. Mm. I know superintendents now, today in Sydney, that struggle to get uh, apprentices, that struggle to get people to apply. They, they, they'll advertise for an apprenticeship as a greenkeeper and they might have, I've actually had guys tell me they've had no responses. Right. And I, it's it's actually really sad to see there are a lot of changes in greenkeeping. Like I, I talked about efficiency before, and I was part of um, a testing day a year and a half ago now, I think it was, with um, a company uh, out of Wagga SME Mowers who have a, a they are distributing through Australia uh, an autonomous fairway mower, a robotic autonomous robotic fairway mower. Wow that can basically go out and cut fairways on its own. Using GPS. Using, yeah. using well, it's a more localised um, system that will do plus or minus, I think, 10 mil on the location. GPS is too variable. Yeah, right. It's, it's got a much higher um, variable in, in its location, so they've got to do a local, I don't remember what it's called, um, but it's basically a local a local uh, GPS or local mapping system that can do it to nearly an exact location, much closer than GPS. And um, they're the sorts of things. So like I talked about earlier with irrigation improvements and, and efficiency of machines and uh, the speed at which they can cut, the number of heads that they've got, the area that they can cover over a certain period of time, all those things um, have changes to the, to the amount of labour input required on a golf course. 
you have the wonderful great golf courses of the country that still need labour because they they want hand mown greens and they want you know bunkers raked a certain way and and you've got to tend to a lot of areas that are um, need weed control and and all those sorts of things. So they need labour yeah. um, and they can afford it. But you have the, the sort of more um, I say rudimentary loosely, but local club courses, public access, council run tracks, um, country courses that have, I know know plenty of country courses that have one greenkeeper. Yeah, jack of all trades. Uh, As I'm sure you do, as I'm sure you know, and plenty of people would know them. Um, And it's difficult to to do. So are there more people coming into greenkeeping? I would say no, sadly. Mm. Mm. Um, Some of that's through efficiencies in the industry um, and some of it's through, uh, I suppose, new opportunities and new job opportunities where uh, young people are looking to IT and there's a boom in all of that type of stuff. It's certainly, as I mentioned, robotics and AI, um, that they're moving towards those things more so than greenkeeping. And at the same time, people want to earn a living and there's not a great deal of high-profile or well-paid apprenticeships out there Um that's going to give you a, a good enough living to, to live out of home in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, where if you go into IT or something like that, you're going to earn a lot more money straight up. And I think that's where a lot of people are heading and potentially you know, being nurtured by their parents into those fields as well. I understand. Well, I think uh, there's definitely no shortage of Greenkeepers and apprentices at Peninsula Kingswood. I saw, I saw, a, I saw a picture of the, uh, the the guys the other day, and they they they, they could have fielded three football teams uh, with the amount of guys. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, now, the golfing greenkeeper. Yep. What's the what's the the purpose behind you know your online persona as the golfing greenkeeper? Now, for me, from what I can see, the golfing greenkeeper, you've got your Instagram page yep. uh, um, how else do we get in contact with you as the golfing greenkeeper um, look I've got a Facebook page which I'm sort of just starting it's very um, I suppose not something that I use a lot I started it through Instagram um, because for me as a social media platform Instagram was very much um, picture based obviously so I, I found it really um, enjoyable to try and put the content out. It's very visual. That's the basis of the platform. And when you go out on a golf course, you're immersed by what you see. And that's how I started. So for me, in terms of contact, it's all through Instagram. That's the main platform that I use a lot um, for everything to do with the Golfing Greenkeeper. I I love the, the way the platform works and you can take videos and, and photos and, and all those types of things and do live stuff and so I'm doing interviews and bits and pieces now. But it's, it's through Instagram that I've really enjoyed more and more trying to, uh, I suppose, promote the, the behind the scenes of a golf course to people that play golf that have a love of golf that want to know a little bit more about how it comes to be. Um, and it, yeah, it's just the visuals of the platform because that's how I see golf. I walk onto a golf course and you, and I'm sure we've all done it. We've been somewhere that either surprised us or is a bucket list. And we just stand there from the moment we, we either drive to the driveway and we go, wow, or we get out of the car and we go to the, to the main 
viewing area, be it near the pro shop or the clubhouse balcony or whatever it might be, and you just stand there and you go, look look at this place. Yeah. Look at what this is, and I love it now. I haven't done anything else, and I already love it. Yeah. And that's really what I, I want to try and do from, from the, the golfing greenkeeper is show people places that they haven't been to yet, they don't know about yet, they might have seen before and, and haven't seen recently and just go, wow, that's there or this is new or I want to go there and check it out, see what it, this is what it is. You need to now come here and see it for yourself. Well, one of the things that you've been privileged enough and lucky enough to be able to do is to get some special access to some special courses of spe- um, more recent times. And one of those courses was probably going to be the biggest course on everyone's lips in the next uh, week or so, and that was Royal Melbourne. So you recently had a visit to Royal Melbourne, and you spent some time with Mr. Forsyth down there. I did indeed. So I did indeed. I don't think that I'm going to get uh, any access to Richard Forsyth between now and the President's <laughs> Cup. So, mate, you're going to have to deputise as his fill-in and give us the inside juice into what's going on down there at Royal Melbourne in preparation for the President's Cup and Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods, mate. Well, look, I'll do my best with the insight that Richard was um, so very, very kind to give me. Um, Part of what I do now with having a little bit more time not being on a golf course myself is, is, you're right, I I get the chance to try and knock on the door and see see the courses that I couldn't see while I was busy working on one um, and still learn, which is what I love to do um, in the greenkeeping side and, and golf architecture side is still learn. Uh, so yeah, Richard was, was very kind and, and gave me an hour of his time, um, just to see what it was like to prep for a, a major tournament. I've not worked on one, never, never seen one in preparation. So it was, um, it was really, really interesting to see what is involved on such a large scale. And the first thing that, that, um, that I, I got out of Richard was the scale of, of, of the President's Cup, in it's the largest tournament that our country has hosted. So it's bigger than our Australian Open. It's bigger than our PGA. It's bigger than our and and I didn't realize and that's not necessarily in how it's it's viewed by our professional golfers or anything like that. It's more about the spectators. Mm. That's that when I talk about size, that's really what we're talking about is is the amount of spectators and. And the numbers that they were talking about, that Richard was saying, was something like thirty to thirty-five thousand people a day is expected to move through Royal Melbourne. This President's Cup, when they had it in 2011, was somewhere around eighteen thousand people a day. So this year, they're for rough numbers. Let's say they're expecting double the amount of people to be at the golf course to watch it. It's certainly, as you mentioned, it's on the everyone's lips about this event this year and being at Royal, um, the, the teams that are coming, have the internationals got much of a chance? You know, we, sadly, Brooks Kepka's not coming um, and replaced by Ricky, but it's going to be incredibly fascinating, incredibly fascinating to see how the course is tackled and how the players play against each other because also it's it's not a, a single stroke format where they're playing for themselves. It's the teams and they're playing match and match play and that sort of stuff. So it's the size of the event really took my breath away in a sense. So I, I didn't understand it 
until I could see the, the layout of where the, the grandstand. So I went there in July um, and this, everything was just starting to, to come into the site. Um, so they'd marked out where the stands were going to be. Uh, that they've got some, you know, the media tent was starting to be built, all those sorts of things. And I just, it was, just, it was staggering. And I'd only seen the course once before, the year before. So 12 months earlier, um, they were building a back, a new back tee on 18 East, which will be the 16th for this tournament, the President's Cup. So 12 months earlier, they were starting to improve, or not so much improve, because it does take a while to prep for a course. You've got to do all these things so that the tees and, and any areas that they're going to, um, say, rebuild or add or change need to have, have a, had a bit of time to grow in and feel like they've always been there. So last year, yeah, they were building a new tee on what will be the 16th for this tournament mm. um, to have it ready. So the size really got me at just how many people were expected to come. It was, it's it's going to be incredible. And what about the, you know, from an agronomy pers- perspective, did uh, Richard give you an insight into, you know, any little bits of gold that you can enlighten us with? You know, I played there well, fairly recently. Uh, <coughs> when was it? September, October? October. And uh, as, you, as you said, the build for the, the uh, event was starting to take shape well and truly by then. And, yep. but I, I, yeah, I guess it, was there anything that he could that he told you that you know that was going to be you know about the course and this course set up you know the firmness yeah. or, the, or, the, or the width of the fairways or I don't know. Yep, yep, no, absolutely, and you're right. Sorry, I did. I was it was October when I went down because I did just miss you. I think that time yeah. um, when he showed me around, not July. So yeah, we know the sandbelt courses and that they play firm and and they're going to be a little bit more certainly more of the ground game than than some other courses that we're used to seeing. Um, but the, it's the firmness that really, that really surprised me. Mm. Um, just what the ground game is and, and the prep of those, of the greens. So the way that they'll be, um, sort of really firming them up by top dressing those greens, um, drying them out in a sense that it's, it's going to come down to hand watering just to get the right moisture content to not have them overwatered. Um, it's not about, um, keeping them, you know, getting them through a hot period or whatever. This is purely prep for tournament for the for the week of the event or what's two weeks as a junior president's cup on the week before. Um, so they will be just firming up all the areas of the greens really, really well. And I've actually had a video on my Instagram when I went down there, <laughs> Richard's bouncing the ball yeah. on the green and showing me how bouncy it is. And I've never seen anything like that coming from New South Wales. Uh, we don't really have that type of, of, of green surface so much here, um, being more humid, um, that sort of stuff. It's, it's, there are courses that have it. But, yeah, Richard was just explaining what he, he, they I want saw, to achieve. I remember that video. If you did that in New South Wales, at some, uh, you know, some of your courses up there, you would have left plug marks it would have had to finish. He was throwing, well, the ball, he, throwing the ball into the green as hard as he could and it was just bouncing off it like it was concrete. Well, it reminded me of bouncing on a cricket wicket. Yeah. It was, it, that's exactly what it looked like, but there was grass on it. Mm. So in my head, I'm, I'm looking at this thing happening and it's got this wooden clunk. Mm. And Richard says to me, I said, mate, that's incredible. And he goes, yeah, look, it's still not quite there. We've still got a bit of time to go. He said, it needs to be more clunky mm. and, and the bounce could be a little bit better. Yeah. 
And I, I just, I was like, wow, is this, this isn't, this isn't um, artificial. This is real. It's growing grass on sandy soil, and we're trying to get this feel to the to how the golf game will will be played, and that firmness really sets the tone for the course. So then you've got the surrounds in the the approaches and the lead-ins to those greens, where guys, if the pin's at the front of the green, you can't do what you do in Asia in some of the the bigger tournaments in Asia or some of the American tournaments where um, the greens are certainly softer because they have high rainfall or they're high temperatures to keep the greens alive and that sort of stuff. And, and all golf courses are maintained differently by different people for different reasons. Um, but in Melbourne, if the pin's on the front 10 metres of a green, you're going to see some really interesting golf being played on certainly some of the short par fours, whether they take an iron off the tee and how they, how they hit into the green – uh, are they going to allow for a couple of bounces before it checks? Are they going to be running it up? What's the wind going to do? Will then dictate what they can do playing to it. If the pin's at the back, are they just going to land it 10 metres short and literally roll it all the way up and around? Um, so the firmness is a real um, focal point of of how the President's Cup will be played, and certainly Royal Melbourne anyway. I mean, you, you've played it. I haven't played it yet myself. Um, I've seen it a couple of times and walked it, but that firmness on the greens and the surrounds with their grass types that they have um, is really a focus for them. And the cooch grass that they have on the fairways, uh, you know, Richard was saying it, it's, it's legend cooch. It's, a, it's basically a, a strain of common cooch. It, he just talked about how much more effort it needs just to really get it um, working well for the course, just to lift it uh, so it's growing nicely. But then they'll dry out the rough. So that they've got a, a period in that, that he sort of said there's some uh, winter grass growing through the rough, bits and pieces like that. They're not going to – they don't go out there and just blanket spray like courses do to, to eliminate weeds and some grassy weeds. They're a lot more – the feel that I got from Richard was um, some of those areas, they're just going to let the natural attrition of the, the seasonal change where it's dry, it's hot, that'll burn off a lot of the winter grass. Um, it'll then soften and thin out some of those rough areas. So you'll have areas that will run through, that'll skip. The course will, will part of its, its defence is its firmness and its roll. So that's where you'll see bunkers come into play, how they roll into bunkers, how they roll off fairways into rough if they hit them through corners. Um, it's not going to be a case of stopping it, letting it sit up on a, on a nice dense, dense sward of, of grass in the rough. It'll be sitting down in in thin, firm base soil, rough. I mean, there's going to be recovery shots that are going to be unique to Australia. So um, the dryness that that that's going to be part of this year anyway. It doesn't look like we're going to get much rain anywhere on the east coast of Australia uh, before the event to to change the look of the course and the feel of the course. Um, if we get any short term rainfall before it. Um, that might change it on the day of play, for example. But generally speaking, uh, I think you're going to see some really great golf. And for match play, it's going to be fantastic to watch. It really is. Well, it's a, it, it will bring in the blend of you know some of those big bombers who <laughs> you know want to want to just smash driver. And it's a course that you know with the width of the the fairways, you can smash driver. But then. As you say, the, that approach then leaves you another 
and a different strategy to, you know, your traditional, you know, placer of the ball who, you know, is going to think about a different way to get his ball and golf his ball under the green. And, yeah, that's going to be the real interesting part for me is watching some of the big bombers and then watching some of the uh, the international strategists and some of the guys that have got a little bit more experience uh Maybe those you know, you know played a bit more in Europe and that sort of thing. So uh, it's going to be yeah. very interesting to see. Now, yeah, well, thank you, mate. Um, what about where was your next course you went to? Another Royal? You went to Royal Adelaide recently, did you not? I did. I was fortunate enough to um, to head down to Adelaide, and I uh, I did get to go and see Nathan Bennett, the superintendent at Royal Adelaide. Now, I've never been to Adelaide for golf to even look at golf courses or anything like that. So it was something that on the back of, of Royal Melbourne um, that I thought, you know what, if I have the opportunity with the time that we're spending down and it turned out that I had a morning, um, I did get in touch with Nathan and, and he was, again, very kind with his time. And Royal Adelaide for me, it's, we often talk about the courses that we all know and we all hear of and that, we're, that are, that are um, well played in tournaments throughout Australia. And Royal Adelaide's had its, had its share. But in the, probably the time of my greenkeeping career, we talk about the Dr. McKenzie's and, and all those sorts of ones in, in the sand belt that have been touched by him, New South Wales, Royal Sydney, the Australian, and the ones of, of Sydney that we all know where the tournaments have been held. And Royal Adelaide has sort of slipped the conversation is probably the way I'll say it. Definitely under the radar. When, Definitely under the radar. Yeah, it is. And when I so it wasn't basically started by Dr. McKenzie. So he's come into it during his 26th whirlwind tour of Australia, as they call it, um, and and came up with a, a, a review of the master plan, a layout of the course, and they adopted some of those changes along the way. But it was started by Kagi Rymel. Um, who basically he and and Gardner were two of the mainstays of the of the club in the very early days when it began, and they basically routed the course and and built the course in a sense. And then Mackenzie had come in and said, "These are some changes which I think you should adopt, which will benefit greatly." Um, and of course, he was right. The ones that they did adopt, the famous short par four third hole, uh, which is when you see it in person, is absolutely astonishingly beautiful. Um, and there's a number of, of, of his touches there. But like I said, it, it slips the modern conversation. We get lost a little bit with the Cape Wickhams and the Barn Bugles and, and these sorts of places that, that are, are modern-day masterpieces. Um, and certainly the, the stalwarts of, of golf bucket lists. And then the old one slips through. Now, Royal Adelaide is, is certainly ranked very well. In the uh, in the in the top numbers of Australian golf course ratings, um, it bounces in and around the top ten thereabouts usually, but it just isn't talked about. Now I've got to say, and and I've I've done a couple of things on my Instagram about it as well. I would suggest to anyone to fly to Adelaide just to play Royal Adelaide and then fly home. Mm. It's that good. Now I again I didn't have time to play it. I didn't get the opportunity. But my two hours that I spent there was an hour with Nathan or thereabouts, and then I just basically spent an hour just walking around myself just in amazement of the lay of the land and the landscape that it's in. <laughs> Everyone talks and knows about the train, and that's such a unique quirk to the golf course. 
but it's the sand dunes and the, the sandy soil and the way that they're used in the holes as defense um, and used in your to your advantage to play golf as well if you learn some of the nuances. But, wow, just an ama- – and the contrast, the sand down there is a lot darker tan in color, and you get certainly – Adelaide, sorry, South Australia is the driest state in the country of Australia. So you have a dryness that comes through, really um, dries out the, the the leaf blades and the seed heads in the rough, and you have these really high contrasting colours and textures. And it it's such a postcard. It really the only one I can think of that I've seen myself that reminds me of Royal Adelaide in in certainly Melbourne was the dunes. Golf links uh, down the Mornington. Oh, really? It just has those, okay. yeah. It just has those contrasting colours yeah. with the long wispy grass and, and just because there's uh, just wavy hills in the background and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I hadn't played the dunes for a lot. It was a long time ago now, but Royal Adelaide is. It's got some wonderful, wonderful golf holes that have stood the test of time. And uh, yeah, it was. It needs to be back in the the world of golf bucket lists that people should visit. It's it really is sensational. Yeah, I definitely get the sense that it's very uh, under, under underrated, under, underrated, but uh, underestimated in terms of its prowess and and uh, stateliness as one of Australia's gems of of golf courses. Absolutely, and I think and and you know I've I've started to um, talk to uh, golf course architect Harley Cruz and do a little bit of interviewing with him and that sort of stuff. And talking to Harley, he's like, Royal Adelaide is, is very well regarded. Yeah. And so in the golf course circles um, of architecture and, and certainly greenkeeping that it is, but I think in, in the populist circles where we talk about going to play and have to fly here and do this and do that, it's not talked about so much. And it's worth the trip to Adelaide if you can get on there, if you can get access to there and um, and play it. You know, you've got Kionga just over the road and you've got uh, the Grange, 36 holes down there. You do, and, and then you've got Glen Elg as well. Glen Elg down there. I saw some pictures of uh, Golf Guy 77 who we hosted at Peninsula Kingswood on Sunday. Uh, yep. Chris, um, yep. he was over there, played Glen Elg and Royal Adelaide uh, on the same day before he flew across to New Zealand. Yep. And uh, he was just raving about Glenelg. But you've got Lynx Lady Bay down the road. And, yeah, that's um, get a good rap. And Mount Compass is, is coming of age as well. Ben, Ben's, doing, Ben's doing a great job with the um, uh, social media for Mount Compass. It looks fantastic. The, the pictures yeah. that young Ben puts up on that is awesome. So put Adelaide on your bucket list. Absolutely, uh, destination, guys. Destination list. Now, We'll talk about one more course, and it's one that's very close to uh, my heart, as my listeners will know, and that's Peninsula Kingswood, because you spent some time there when you were in Melbourne on one of the trips. And was it Glenn that took you around there, Glenn Stewart? No, Glenn Stewart was actually on annual leave, um, but he was kind enough in his time away to put me on to uh, one of the superintendents, and I think it's the north north course, Ben Payne. Yep. Um, And wonderful guy, Ben. Again, I can't thank all these guys enough. For their time because it does take time out of their day. Um, we've all, anyone who's interested in golf has heard about Peninsula Kingswood and its transformation and its its new path forward. And I've seen photos, videos, spoken to people who've been there. You've got yourself, as you mentioned, it's close to your heart being um, a part, a member of the club. There's, you can, you can easily find a lot of, of imagery and videos about the course 
But again, until you're there, you don't get a sense of scale, um, immersion of the landscape once, you, once you're literally standing there. Um, probably the only thing I can say that really hopefully gives it some credit is I, wa- I don't think I've ever been more surprised by a golf course than Peninsula Kingswood because of its hype, and I was still surprised. That's pretty positive. I, I hope that does give it enough credit, but I I expected a lot, and it overwhelmed me. <laughs> yeah. It it really was um, that good, and the work that OCCM, which is now um, Mike Clayton's moved on to um, different ventures, it's now OCM, but um, the work they've done there is remarkable to say the least it, it's it's like nothing i could have expected either the way that they've brought the golf course and the landscape out together and and obviously it was it was two courses previous and, and you would know a lot more about that than i do but just taking on the way that i i experienced it when i visited um yeah the the way that they've brought the course and the landscape out together as one um, to make it feel like our version of Tara Edi or, you know, it, just the sand that, that abounds and the way that you can play golf around it. It's such a, a, a wonderful wallpaper to walk through and I'm sure play golf on. Being a member there, I've got – so for me, it, it really puts itself up on par with all of the other – uh, mainstay courses that we know of and hear about in the sandbelt. I, I can't think of any reason why it would be considered of any lesser a, a facility than a Kingston Heath, a Metropolitan, a Royal Melbourne. It, it To me, you walk in there or you drive in there and you see it and you just go, this is as good as it gets. What, what else could you ask for? So was there anything you learnt from the team down there that you know, stood out in, in the way that they're prepping the course, what they're doing with the course? Uh, you know, is there anything that, you know, was different that you learned? Well, there's um, – they're using, which has now started to be put on a few golf courses uh, around the place, is Pure Distinction Bentgrass. Um, it's now been there on some of those greens now for four years. Yep. So they're starting to see how it's performing, um, having been used for quite some time. And – uh, as far as the, the surface prep um, in the way that they maintain the golf course, for me, I'll probably learn a lot more. So pure distinction, like I said, it's a new grass, and it seems to be performing really well for, for them. Uh, a lot of courses have not had it in that long to be able to sort of talk about how it's performing as it's, as it's maturing. Um, again, a lot of it is in the top dressing. In modern golf course maintenance, we're now looking for more regular light top dressing to maintain surfaces better. It means that you don't have to go back. Um, I say have to go back, but you're not doing the old renovations that we remember where plenty of courses still do it. There's nothing wrong with it, but where you go out and you call your greens twice a year and you, you know, they're out of the rough play now, you know, for three or four weeks after you do a heavy top dress and all that sort of stuff there. They're, they're moving along and this new pure distinction is allowing for this regular top dressing, regular de-thatching. It keeps the surface um, manageable so much better by doing this if you've got the equipment to, to allow for it. 
Um, so, yeah, just the way they maintain their greens, uh, it's becoming more commonplace to move away from the big two renovations per year um, and just do regular routine light stuff. You can still play on it straight after they do a light top dress and uh, it's still very much playable. There's no upsetting the, the year um, and dodging events, whether it be corporate or championships and that sort of stuff. So that was really interesting to see how those surfaces were maturing. And um, some of the – I was looking for a little bit more on the construction side and the architecture side with Peninsula Kingswood for me. Um, you know, they've got some unique um, darker sands there that they – they use around their bunker edging to get that – they want to get towards that really crisp metropolitan-style golf bunkers and green blends, that, that just that laser cut edge. Mm. Um, and they're – you know, some of the way that they've utilised that, just things that people don't think about, I, I, I'm now looking at um, is the placement of their cart paths and how they use them. So some of the cart paths, you know, at, at Peninsula Kingswood – uh, through the sand waste areas in the carry zone from the tee to the fairway, and they are concrete the way that they've laid them out in in that they hide them from view. So as you approach the tees, you can't see them. Um, they're, they're the same or very similar coloured concrete to the sand itself. So again, from a distance, it's not aesthetically absurd to look at this great big concrete path barreling from the tee to the fairway. You don't even know it's there. So those sorts of little things I was really interested in, the way they use some of their uh, stone through their creek line that they use on the south course uh, that they re-instigated on the course uh, and, and opened up around the place. So they use a lot of, the, I think it's a bluestone type thing that they have down there. Um, and just some of the uh, draping of the surrounding grass, letting the cooch just roll in over these areas that they'd put the stone. So it it felt like it, it had been there for yeah, like some of the British Isle courses that they've been there for a hundred years. Um, you're getting these really aged effects really quick. So I was looking for a lot of that stuff as well. Um, but pure distinction on the greens. It's a bit of a buzz name in golf green grass at the moment. And a lot of courses are using it or going into using it. Victoria is another one that's prepping for when they host the Oz Open. I think it's in 22. Um, all their greens have been resurfaced with pure distinction, and it looks immaculate. Yeah, I played, I played there. I played there recently too, and uh, it's uh, those greens are are fantastic. And to me, they just were like a little carbon copy clone of um, you know the greens two years ago at Peninsula when that when when they were uh, a little bit newer. They're perfect. But um, well, it was good to hear your feedback on on Peninsula Kingswood. Obviously. I wax lyrical about it a lot, but uh, it's always nice oh, to hear look, that it is. Uh, honestly, is I can I can totally see why. Um, I, I I thought the hype was just was hype in that when I got there it would be a real golf course, but it's so much more than the hype. <laughs> it's mm. incredible. Well, it's pretty much all finished now. It's been finished for a while, but you know the the surrounds um, around the. The, the gym and the pool and the tennis court and the bowls green, it's all finished. The short game area, which you would have seen on the left-hand side as you drove in. Yes, uh, yes. Which is sensational, is now open. The interesting thing is, and it's probably, you know, like a lot of new developments, needs a, a summer season, needs a growing season, but, but they were quite keen to get people onto the short game greens and the short game area to start using it. And the, the message that we seemed to get was the greens respond – 
to when there is play, even if they're just a little bit, you know, ready. Um, and a couple of greens on the courses were brought into play. Uh, and the feedback was like it they respond better when people are walking on them and playing on them and they, they seem to activate more. Or I don't know. Is there a reason for that? Well, probably a little bit, yeah. Um, at the end of the day, if they're maintain, if when you when you're building and, and growing in a green ready for play, you're you're already um, working that surface. You're already working the grass. So if you're working it from a maintenance point of view, why why keep golfers off it? Yeah. You know, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you're working with machines. You're cutting it. You you might be top dressing it. You might be um, lightly detaching it. Just keeping that leaf. Um, Fluffing it up, getting it ready to cut, then then rolling it flat. So you're doing all this work to the to the surface and to the to the grass itself. There's no point keeping players off it for the sake of you know because it's it's still young. Um, you know, I remember when we were doing bits and pieces at Katoomba, and we, I've read articles about courses being grown in. You know, at three months, um, pretty much twelve weeks, you you well and truly want to be playing golf on it. I think that's my opinion. Now that's a that's a it's, it's a vague number. And, um, you know, I've done some things sooner than that for different reasons. And I'm sure guys have done it for, I've done it at eight weeks, guys have done it at 10 and some people wait five months. Um, there's a lot of factors, but yeah, if you're working that surface, there's no point. I don't see a point in keeping golfers off it because you're on it every day anyway. (laughs) So, well, we're on all of them now and, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. The short game area, which will, which I'm very much looking forward to. Everyone knows that my short game is the is my pain point, so I was down there chipping chipping some balls today, which was great, mate. Unreal. What's the next uh, course on the agenda for you? What's who are you talking to? So you're talking to Harley Cruz, and you and you're doing some interviews with him, and they've been really interesting, and engaging from uh, what Harley's got to say. Obviously, a very well respected and regarded uh, course architect in Australia. What's next else as well? Yeah, well, I, as you mentioned, so I, I'm doing a bit of work um, with Harley. I'm trying to, uh, I suppose, discuss and open up a lot of the behind the scenes, the unknowns. Architecture's very, I suppose, specialised, of course, uh, very professional people, and there's, they're not everywhere. Um, we all know some of the, the names in Australia, and Harley's well-respected um, and certainly uh, well-versed in, in his works throughout uh, Southeast Asia and Australia and some of the stuff that he's done. And just Harley's and I are sort of really enjoying that the conversation and, and bringing out some of those background things. And he's done a lot of work in Kalara in Sydney. It's a, uh, a very well-known private golf course that's just redone um, full 18 greens reconstruction. Um, and I want to, I want to do more into that with Harley. If, if he, when he has the time and he's, he's, said that he's uh, keen to do some more as well when when the opportunities arise. So um, talking about architecture is good, understanding why and how it works and what the the end result is for golf out on a golf course. I love interviewing superintendents and greenkeepers alike, and I'm going to be doing a little bit more of that as well, uh, different types of courses. So I tend to do it as I travel around um, and get the chance and the opportunities. Some of them will be local to me. Um, in here on the northern beaches of Sydney, um, some of them, are, you know, hopefully, will be some country courses and the like. So, I just want to be able to bring some more out to people, different types of courses. It doesn't always have to be the Royal Melbournes of the world. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be yeah. the Australians of the world. I totally and, agree. And being from the country, from the bush, 
I want to try and also bring out, I went to, um, along the Murray, uh, went to Tokemall Golf Club, and they've got a 36-hole facility there. And I, I caught up with Ben, superintendent of the courses down there, and, and it was really nice to engage with someone um, who is a superintendent of not a very high-profile golf course in amongst the talks of, of Australian golf. But talk about what they do. You know, they don't do anything terribly differently. They just have less people to do it with. Yeah. Well, very, well Tokemall is one of the most popular uh, river, oh. des- river destination courses for anyone in Melbourne. You know, where are you going to play? Where are you going for the weekend? I'm oh, going to Tokemall. Uh, I couldn't believe it yeah. when he told me. <laughs> just the numbers are staggering. Yeah. You know, um, but it, and the Murray is a wonderful golf destination of Australia. And I've never been there before. So I went, I've, I've known Ben because he used to be a superintendent. Um, further up in the, in the lower central west at um, Young Golf Club. Um, and, um, yeah, I've known Ben for a couple of years now, and then when he moved, made the move back to Tokenwell for him, um, it, was a, it was a wonderful facility to see. Uh, you know, if it's out in the bush, it doesn't mean that it's a goat track. And I think a lot of people um, do sometimes think that we hear about drought and that sort of stuff. It doesn't mean that the courses are terrible to play on. It doesn't mean that they're so dry they're unplayable. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're playing on a dust bowl. It just means that the landscape is drier than normal, very much drier than normal. And guys have to be guys and girls that are looking after golf courses, whether they be professionally paid or volunteers, just have to, I suppose, work around those issues and problems with what they have. And some of them. A lot of them do wonderful jobs in in that and provide great golf courses to play on. Um, so, yeah, I want to try and bring a little bit more of the bush out uh, to people and see courses, talk about golf courses. I, I know I've visited the Central West quite regularly um, and Duntry League at Orange is one of my favourites. And uh, it's it's a wonderful golf course, you know, routed by Eric Appley and, uh, who, who did the early work on New South Wales, for example, and Newcastle Golf Club. So... Um, it's a wonderful golf course, quality services, Grant, the superintendent out there, and his team do, team do a wonderful job with, with their water availability and, and the like. So it's uh, there's great golf courses to be played at, certainly in holiday destinations, whether they be wine regions or sports regions or whatever it might be. And you can always find a golf course to play, and that's part of the fun of travel um, that I find now. Throw the clubs in the back if you're going away for a weekend. See if you get a time to play, and even if it's nine, you're going to enjoy it, Absolutely. you know, and talk to people and, and see what's around, what's worth playing. Send me a message and say, hey, Steve, I'm heading out west in New South Wales, what's worth playing? Or talk to Ross and say, Ross, you know, what's what's out in northern Victoria that's worth playing? Uh, you know, it's we're so well connected now through social media that it's it's easy to find some information about what's worth playing. And some of them, you'd be surprised and you go, I'd never even heard of that, John. Wow, I played nine holes there on a recommendation. You know, I had a morning off or I had a morning available and, and, and Ross said to go and have a hit there. And you know what? I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to go to a place that um, doesn't see a lot of golfers, doesn't have a lot of money, but I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed having to be there afterwards, talking to some of the locals. And I felt like, you know, I was part of the part of the local town while I visited. It was great. Well, mate, I'm certainly enjoying watching your journey as the golfing greenkeeper, and I'm certainly enjoying getting to know this great golfing community that we have here in Australia and globally. And uh, I'm sure that you will get and grow 
the Golfing Greenkeeper page substantially. If you want to get in touch with you, how what's the best way to do that? Just direct message you at the Golfing Greenkeeper? Yeah, find me on Instagram, the Golfing Greenkeeper um, is the handle. Just send me a direct message, um, drop me a line, say hey, comment on one of my posts and, and if you want to know anything about any of my travels or, or places that I've been or just some tips about, you know, um, what's worth visiting, um, what time of year is, is a nice place to go and visit to play golf and, and um, the like, more than happy to help out wherever I can. Just get in touch. It's, it's so easy and, and I'm all too happy to, uh, to talk to people about golf and, and greenkeeping and architecture. It's just any of those topics are all fun and if it's, uh, you know, a bit of a... a uh, a common, common thought process and, and a bit of uh, passion, I love discussing it too. It's great fun. So comment on my posts and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's good fun. Mate, I got the feeling that we could talk about golf and greenkeeping and <laughs> uh, architecture and all things to do with uh, that type of part of our world for a long time. I've kept you for an hour. It's late. <laughs> You've probably got to get up and drive another ridiculous amount of hours to go to another job in the morning. So I'm going to let you go. But I really do appreciate you you coming on and, you know, we've been talking about it for a while. I appreciate you tagging me in all of the posts because I get to see everything that you're doing and every time I, I look at what you are doing, I, I learn something or I pick up something that I didn't know. So I appreciate that. Appreciate your time, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ross. And, uh, mate, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a wonderful time to talk. Uh, like-minded someone who's interested in everything to do with golf and uh, mate, love the podcast, especially that intro tune. Massive fan. <laughs> I was Massive give you one, fan. I was going to give you one little tip in. Um, you should make uh, contact with Mitchell Driver, who was a guest on the podcast uh, about episode 15. I'm not sure if you've listened to that. I have listened to, I have listened to Mitchell. I yep. don't know if you know Mitchell, but he's just back in Australia from Glen Eagles where he worked uh, during the Solheim Cup and worked for the last 12 months or so, and he's at Royal Canberra. So continuing your Royal theme, you might want to make contact with Mitchell. I know he listens to the podcast, as does his, his dad, George. Um, you might want to make contact with uh, Mitchell and head down to Royal Canberra and, and check Mate, that out. He's a great Royal guy. Cam- Royal Canberra's been on my list, so uh, no, I'll, I'll do that. I'll get in touch with Mitchell, and uh, the podcast you had with him was, was fascinating listening. So it's uh, like all your podcasts, mate, so I really enjoy them. Uh, they're wonderful to listen to and certainly a great insight to lots of different people involved in the sport in one way or another. So, uh, mate, well done to you because it's really becoming popular, and, uh, and I think it's wonderful that it's great content. People enjoy it, and golf's about characters and the people in the sport, right? So it's fascinating. Love it. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the My Love of Golf podcast. Until next time, thanks for your time. Appreciate that. Goodbye. Bye, mate.